Did Mary's family own the Garden of Olives? Uh, not that I know of. There might be a tradition to that effect, but I don't know of any. I think the Garden of Olives is probably owned by Joseph of Arimathea because his tomb was there. Um, was St. Joseph just a carpenter or was he a stonemason? He was a carpenter. In fact, the Masons, the Freemasons, have an entire legend about Hiram Abiff, the stonemason. And uh, their, their legend tries to make Freemasonry sound as though it's an ancient craft, going back to the time of the building of the Temple of Solomon. That's what the Freemasons liked the, to claim. They have this great mythological lore that they built around Freemasonry, which actually started in England in the year 1717. Um, but uh, they say that Hiram, that the king of Tyre, the king of Tyre uh, was approached by Solomon about Solomon's plans of building a temple in Jerusalem. And the king of Tyre, in fact, did, you read this in the sacred scripture, offer to send uh, workers to help with the temple. He was going to send the great um, cedar beams for the temple. Uh, according to Masonic lore, he also sent stonemasons. And the stonemasons and the carpenters had a bit of a, a rivalry, and uh, the stonemason, the chief stonemason, was murdered by the carpenter. Now, of course, the carpenter symbolizes our Lord, okay, Christianity. And uh, though masonry was dealt a quasi-death blow by Christianity, uh, but it is the ancient doctrine, and uh, so they they revel in the idea now that uh, the stonemasons are responsible for the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, a man named uh, uh, Morton H. V. Morton, I believe a Catholic, wrote some excellent books back in the 1930s about his travels, his travels through the Holy Land one of them in the, in the Steps of the Master. And uh, he talked about his visit to the temple in Jerusalem, how he went under the temple. And he found there in the digs under the temple, <clears throat> or on the site of the Temple Mount, I should say, the site of the Temple Mount, where the temple once stood, he found underneath uh, members of the Masons chipping away at the stonework and inscribing these pieces of stonework with the Masonic symbol. And these were in much demand by Masons throughout the world who had um, bought into the Masonic myth that somehow the, the Masons uh, you know, had a share in building the great Temple of Solomon and um, had suffered violence at the hands of the, the evil carpenters. Um, Anyway, no, uh, St. Joseph was not, a, was not a mason, and nor was our Lord. They were not stonemasons. They were carpenters. It says, since both Joseph and Mary were from the line of King David, why were they so poor? Didn't being a member of David's line give them certain privileges of rank under Hebrew law? Actually, not much. Remember the prophecy of Jacob to his sons, one son being Judah, was that when the scepter shall pass from Judah, 
then shall the desire of the everlasting hills come into the world. The desire of the everlasting hills was understood to be a prophecy or a title given to the Messiah. The Messiah. So he was the desire of Jerusalem, the one longed for. When the scepter passed from Judah, meant that actually the Jacob's son Judah would uh, become a line of kings, as they did with David and Solomon. But when the scepter passed from that family of David, as it did, uh, violently taken from them, about oh, 150 years or so before Christ was born, actually, actually the half-Jew, half-pagan Herod the Great represented, to some extent, the taking of that scepter away from the uh, tribe of David, the line of Judah, and so uh, David's descendants were bereft of that uh, kingship. And um, it is not unusual, but you might even look at it as, as, as similar today to those who were of the nobility in France and England, Austria, Germany. Many times they just have to work day jobs to support themselves because they don't have the, the riches that you'd think would come with royalty. And uh, so it was with Mary and Joseph, no, they didn't have that support. He had to do the work of a carpenter to support the family. Uh, Father Jenkins, may God bless you. I continue to hear in conversations among traditional Catholics about the three days of darkness. Could you briefly explain what this is and what a traditional Catholic should think about it. Well, I'll have to be very brief because I really don't know much about it, and I don't know much about it because I find the whole thing very confusing. I'm told that, Father, that Padre Pio spoke of the three days of darkness. I've never seen actual citations of Padre Pio about it, though. Maybe there is some work that Padre Pio personally published on it. I am not aware of it, nor have I heard any more than just vague references to the fact that Padre Pio talked about it. I don't know what he said, but I, I'm, I'm hearing things that make me, um, that lead me to uh, keep it at somewhat at arm's length. Uh, I hear people uh, developing the idea of three days of darkness in rather peculiar ways, saying, well, only blessed candles will burn, but only blessed candles will burn only blessed oxygen. And of course, you need blessed matches to light the blessed candles. And, and people can go to an extreme and, and uh, almost make a peculiar, even a mockery of it. So I just figure, well, if it happens, fine. There are th other things associated with it that really make me wonder, though. Uh, the idea that if one of your loved ones comes banging on the door, they're, they're stuck in the exterior darkness, you cannot let them in because it might be the devil. But then it might not be, that it might be your loved one desperate to get in, right? It might be, but don't take the chance. Keep that door locked. Don't let them in. I don't know what they do about the windows. I suppose they board up the windows too. But if your husband or your wife, uh, I, I know one man who thoroughly believed in the three days of darkness, but let his wife go to work and just told her, well, if you come back, I'm not going to let you in. And uh, this just doesn't seem to me quite right. You know, something is wrong with this. Uh, I take all of that with a big grain of salt.
with all the graphic descriptions of the beating that Jesus' body underwent, why are there so many paintings and statues with Jesus portrayed with only the five incisions shown, and even then minimal blood? <clears throat> and I think the answer is because <laughs> if they depicted the crucifixion as it really took place, nobody could look at it. It would be just so gruesome, so awful, that uh, people would be more horrified than edified. I think it's as simple as that, really. But it does make you stop and think that the crucifixion must have been so so horribly gruesome that they, uh, they, they have to kind of minimize what they show so that it's not almost scandalous uh, and shocking to little children in particular. Father, do you know of any state or country that is Catholic or at least friendly to Catholicism? Well, no, this depends very much on the uh, leader of the country um, I mean, people talk about Bolsonaro down in uh, Brazil, and uh, I think one other country that has just uh, chosen, or had briefly, uh, chosen a more conservative, pious leader. Uh, but it depends very much on the um, on who is the leader at the time, and even then. You know, they have parliaments to deal with, they have the congresses to deal with. So I don't know of any country that is favorable to Catholicism. Probably, uh, if they were, they would think of the Novus Ordo as being Catholicism. And uh, it's very hard for anyone to be favorable to that. Even worldlings are pretty much disgusted with what they see in the Novus Ordo. So um, as far as, if we, if we talk about Catholicism being true Catholicism, the real traditional Catholicism, I don't know of any. I have heard it said that Muslims consider themselves to be slaves of Allah. St. Louis de Montfort writes of this concerning baptismal vows and his true devotion to Mary, and references the Catechism of the Council of Trent, uh, and it gives it a re actual reference here, okay. Could you clarify the difference between these two, if this is the case? Well, I, I, I understand, if I, miss it, if I understand correctly, I mean, we do talk about the being servants or slaves of Christ, they talk about being the slaves of Allah. What's the difference between being the servant or slave of Jesus Christ and being the slave or servant of Allah? Well, our Blessed Mother herself called herself the handmaiden of the Lord. One might say that was that refers to a bit of slavery, because one could have that sense. Um, when we read the original Ten Commandments, as they appear in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, given 1,400 years before Christ was born, the last of the commandments given reads this way. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. I think there's a semicolon there in the Duireans. Neither shalt thou desire his wife, nor his man-servant, nor his maid-servant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his. And so you see that 
the first thing it says, you shall not covet, is the neighbor's house. And then another phrase following, you have grouped together the wife, the manservant, slave, the maidservant, slave, the ox and the ass, that's the donkey, and the ox as livestock. So the wife is the, comes first in the list of the slaves and the livestock. This is as it is given in Exodus chapter 20. You know? uh, no wonder our Lord said 1,400 some years later that he came come to perfect the law. The law obviously was not perfect. The old law was not perfect, clearly. But the fact is, you know, you have the idea of the manservant and the maidservant. Well, these were slaves. And... Um, so the idea of slavery is not foreign to Catholicism in the sense that we now realize that we are slaves of God. But here's the difference between a slave and, you might say, a servant. Okay. Um, and that difference comes in the relationship that you have with God. The relationship that a Muslim has with Allah is truly a relationship of slavery. Um, it is a matter of kismet. It is a matter of fate. And um, there is no liberty for real virtue. Uh, the relationship that you and I have with our Lord Jesus Christ is a relationship of love, supernatural charity, a relationship of loving forgiveness, a relationship in which uh, the Son of God became mad and gave his own life for us and lo loved us so much that he was willing to die hanging on the cross <clears throat> and uh, suffering in agony and appealing to us to accept his love and respond to it with love of our own. That is absolutely not the relationship of a Muslim with their Allah. Uh, the very suggestion that Allah has a son is blasphemous. The idea even that Jesus, Isa, who was a prophet, and not even the greatest of their prophets, Muhammad, they say, is, the, the idea that he was to be crucified and die was absolutely outrageous and blasphemous, and you are worthy of death for even suggesting it. The fact that he would offer that sacrificial death out of love for our redemption, out of the question. Absolutely out of the question. So their very concept of Allah is so completely contrary to our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ by faith that obviously the relationship that they have with Allah is very, very different, totally different from the relationship that you and I have with our Lord Jesus Christ through grace. The idea that we could be given everlasting life and see God in heaven Again, this is not the idea of Muslim heaven, because it isn't the idea of Muslim God. So I would just say that uh, the idea of our servitude, as it were, to God is a loving servitude, and that, therefore, a joyful servitude. Uh, it, it, that, that difference in that relationship which is based upon the, the, uh, the different concept of who God is, Allah, the One, or Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
second person of the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that difference is so great, it plays out in, in every way. I mean, even the idea of martyrdom is so different from Islam to Catholicism. For, for a martyr, so for someone to be considered a martyr in Islam, he has to die trying to kill the adversaries of Islam. He actually has to die in the effort to destroy others. Uh, his death, rather, is, uh, is uh, an unintended, that is to say, for the most part, if he can avoid it, he would. But even if he straps a bomb on himself and, go, and goes in and blows himself up, he's a martyr because he's killed in the act of trying to kill others and uh, to uh, serve Allah by murdering, and not just combatants, but anyone who is not a slave of Allah is considered the enemy and worthy of death. Little children. That is a far cry from anything that Catholics would recognize as martyrdom. Martyrdom has to be an act of love and giving not taking the life of others. Uh, it has to be a matter of laying down our life as St. Stephen did, praying for his persecutors. As our Lord did on the cross, the first word of our Lord on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And uh, so th there is a, a, it's not even a world of difference between the two. They are not even light years apart. They're at different orders there are totally different orders of things because the, the very notion of Allah is something antithetical to our, our knowledge of God by faith. So they may use the same words, don't mean the same things, so not at all. It seems in so many marriages today that after so many years the relationship dies, many women control the man through sex and her or nagging and complaining. Really? No. And if successful, become contemptuous of the man for his weakness. Or if she married a bully, empowering him by pleasing him even to the ends of violence, it also seems most men figure this out too late. Those words are underlined, too late. Just how difficult a task they faced. If I'm not mistaken, the man must be as God the Father. Calm, patient, give gentle correction with charity, not to bully with anger, nor to be weak or look to always please to seemingly keep peace or satisfy her. The deal perfectly each to deal perfectly each moment with an imperfect, manipulating, controlling, devouring female. My goodness, this is uh, got a speech going on here that has tempted man from the beginning of time. I know they exist, a most godly female who is willing to help partner with the man through this life on a path to heaven. Uh, next card, I guess, maybe uh, you got the cards. Oh, it seemed, I guess I got the cards out of order, I'm sorry. But in any case, uh, in any case, well, let's see now. In your experience, what are the numbers here? It sure seems that a lot more fires burn out than keep burning. Okay. Okay. 
So that's uh, quite a question there, and it's not something, it's not a 25 words or, or less question, obviously. Uh, obviously, it takes a little more than that. I would just say this, though, that the man really is the spiritual head of the family. And uh, yes, if a woman gets the idea that she can manipulate a man by, well, it says here, by the use of sex or the improper use of it, uh, then of course she's going to have contempt for him. Of course she would have. He's being contemptuous, contemptible. She's contemptuous and he's contemptible. Um, so the first thing is, if he's marrying the woman for that, then he is contemptible. And uh, he's setting the stage for some very serious, very serious problems. But obviously that's not what love is. Love goes far beyond that. When you love somebody enough to marry them, you have to love them on all levels. I've seen people come for marriage, for marriage instruction, and it's obvious at times that they do care about each other, they love each other as friends, but they don't have the kind of love that they need to be married. You need a special kind of love to be married to somebody. You need to love them on all levels. I mean, you, love them, uh, you need to love them on the physical level, the intellectual level, the emotional level, the passion, level of the passions, the level of the uh, spiritual level, all levels, you know. And um, that is a unique kind of love that is between a man and a woman who are called by God to give him life and nurture that life. Sometimes you'll find uh, uh, there's, there's some kind of sin in the relationship. Sometimes there's a sin that is just poisoning their relationship and that can cause a lot of trouble. Um, sometimes there is something lingering there in, in, the, in the marriage that is kind of left unresolved that it can involve even grave fault and it, it, it acts as like a kind of toxin in the marriage. So again, the man has to be the leader in all this. He has to take the leadership and uh, lead the way, and he has to know with the wisdom, not, not of Solomon, he needs the wisdom of God, really, to direct his family. Um, but of course, his primary purpose, his primary objective every single moment, every single day, is to be in the state of grace. That's what he has to do. Uh, that's the baseline. That's just the beginning. It's not even the ending. That's not the, the ultimate. The, no, that's just the beginning of what it is to be a good father. And then, and only then, can he apply himself to really thinking, okay, what else do I have to do now to be a good father now that I'm firmly on the basis of sanctifying grace here? So, um, uh, generally, if things go badly in a marriage, uh, somebody's failing, and uh, generally, I'd say it, it's going to be the father. It's going to be the husband. Uh, yes, there are women who can be very, very uh, domineering. That's true. I, I know that. I know they can. The question is, was the woman domineering when the man married her? <clears throat> was she already domineering? And um, if she was, why did he marry her? And did he not realize that he would have to become a great saint now in order to rescue this, this marriage from the jaws of disaster? Uh, or was she not domineering? Was she domineering and she fooled him? And she deceived him by feigning being uh, the, the humble damsel? Um, I said it before that, you know, we have the image of the, 
the 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 knight riding off to rescue the fair damsel from the fire-breathing dragon, but somehow he makes a mistake and he winds up marrying the dragon. And uh, did he did she he not realize what he was doing? Uh, did he not realize who he was marrying here? Did she really fool him again? I would say, well, if she really deceived him to that extent that he made a tragic mistake and married someone he, he realizes afterwards he should never have married, then again, it's what happened? Why did he make that mistake? Was he not praying as he should? Was he not as virtuous as he should? What was it? Was, certainly God was not deceiving him. So uh, I would have to say I, I doubt that she fooled anybody. She, I doubt that she, if she did fool somebody, I doubt that she fooled him without him being at fault. But he might say, no, no, she wasn't this way when I married her. And I'd say, okay, well, how did you allow this to happen? How did you allow this to happen over years that she became this person? When you're supposed to be the guardian of this family, and notably the wife and your, uh, your wife's soul, and you're supposed to have the most input uh, and influence in terms of your prayer, your example, your, your counseling, and so on, then if she wasn't this way when you married her and, and she became this woman, well, then I can't help but think that there, there has to be some failure on the part of the husband, too. Um, I mean, if she's ill and, or she had an accident and it's changed her way of thinking, uh, changed her personality, that, that's something more drastic. But it's not often the case. Sometimes the relationship just goes sour because they lose respect for each other. And there's a reason for that. And... It's almost impossible to trace it back to its origins because it starts in obscurity, in little things day by day by day. <coughs> but it is the husband's primary responsibility to deal with it effectively and to prevent that from happening. So, it's sad, it is sad to see so many couples been together for 10, 20, 30 years and the exchange between them, their conversation is more bickering than anything else. That's, that's very sad. Whereas actually they should love and appreciate each other more and more for their virtues, their goodness, and the years of fidelity and service. But, as I say, sin has a lot to do with it. And if sin gets in there, it tends to poison everything and ruin everything. Is it irretrievable? No, no. But Somebody has to start get serious about becoming a saint, that's all. And being the man, the woman, the husband, the wife that God wants them to be. Uh, is prayer and the sacraments enough to overcome what seems to me to be the more common scenario? Uh, no, sacrifice, sacrifice is needed too. Sacrifice and an enormous amount of patience is necessary uh, to... You know, you talk about prayer and the sacraments. Those, again, are the baseline. Those are the baseline. You have to start with that. But you have to build on that. But there's a lot more to accomplish beyond them. Any specific guidance or books, this subject matter doesn't seem to be addressed much specifically in books or teachings. Oh, my. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to have to park these and come back to it. It's just a lot here. And uh, I do have to really give a conference here. Um, this I'm not sure. I'll have to get back to you on that too. But uh, 
This is unusual. You, uh, you men have a lot more questions than the ladies do. And, uh, but they're interesting questions, I must say. Um, earlier today I was talking about what we as Catholics know of hell and why it's so important that we take very seriously that which we know of hell. And I mentioned St. John Bosco. I said I would uh, not go into, I would not read that to you, and I don't intend to because it is quite long. But I thought, well, maybe it wouldn't be bad to give a synopsis of it. This is called A Prophetic Dream of St. John Bosco. The year was 1868. And uh, St. John Bosco began to recount this dream on May 3rd, but he actually had the dream sometime, I believe, in April. Perhaps uh, over the night of April 17th, he was warned that he would have the following night a, a dream that would be not only really for his benefit, but for the benefit of his boys. And this is what comes through in, in the course of this prophetic dream he had, that he was concerned for his boys. He is being shown the spiritual condition of the boys in his schools. Not only the boys who were in the school at that moment, but boys who had been through the schools before. John Bosco talked about being visited by a heavenly visitor who would take him, who would wake, wake, waken him actually in sleep and simply said, get up and follow me. And that's how the dream began. And so John Bosco was resisting, actually. He was in dread of what he was going to see. He said, though, they were following across a great plain. It seemed to go on forever. He didn't know if he had the strength, even, to keep going. But his... His guide would not take no for an answer. He just kept moving forward. And Don Bosco was challenged to keep up. Finally, he said, he came to a road. There was a road ahead. And the guide took him down that road. And the road actually was very beautiful. It was lined with uh, flowers, trees. It's very peaceful, almost, almost as beautiful as a, as a painting, as a, as a painting by uh, someone who is looking to create a very, very, very uh, delightful scene, an idealized, idealized scene, let's say, of a, of a road which was um, sort of the type of thing of fantasy, that everything is just idealized in its beauty. And Don Bosco noticed that as he was walking down this road, it was as though he was floating down the road, effortlessly floating down the road. And he was very surprised how effortless it was because he had just crossed this great plain following this unforgiving guide, and he thought that he was ready to collapse from exhaustion. Now, here he is on this road, which is so delightful in every way. 
delightful to the eye, to the ear, to the, to the smell, the nose, and so on. And he felt it was effortless as he walked along here. But he said he came to a part of the road then when he began to feel something grabbing at his feet. And then he became aware of some of the boys from his school actually following behind them. And the boys caught up with Don Bosco and his guide. And as the boys were pressing forward down that very pleasant road, they began to trip and fall over nothing, nothing visible. But they would trip, and they would fall. And when they would fall, they'd be dragged away off into a distance somewhere. And uh, as John Bosco watched more closely, and he was rather taken aback by what he was seeing there, because he, he didn't see why the boys were tripping and why the boys were falling. But he was very concerned about where they were being dragged. And in a distance, off in a distance, he saw that they were bring, being dragged to the edge of a cliff. And they were dragged off the edge of a precipice. And he asked his guide, what is this? What, what's going on here? The guide told him to take a closer look. And Don Bosco uh, began to look down at the road. And he saw tiny little filaments, almost invisible, little filaments of uh, string, wire, so fine, like little hairs, you could barely see them. And the boys were tripping over these things. And then they were being dragged off and... Uh, and plunging to their deaths. And Don Bosco was asking his guide what this was. And Don Bosco got the answer from his guide that uh, these boys were falling into the trap of human respect. That these were the traps that were laid for them. Human respect. To do things in order to be approved by others. Human respect. And this was presented to him as the first challenge, the first thing that was causing his boys to fall that they would fall into human respect and what their friends would think of them, not what God would think of them. God, rather, that they would fall into vices because they would want to, well, basically be part of the crowd, go along with the crowd. And Don Bosco uh, said that he actually picked up one of these threads and he followed it to the end. He said he came to the mouth of a cave finally and there was a monster inside drawing all of these threads to himself. Don Bosco quickly let go and returned to his guide. He was, wanted to find out where does this lead? Where is it taking these boys? And Don Bosco said, well, let me warn them. Let me go back and warn them because he recognized some of the boys involved. And his guide said, no, even if you went back to warn them, they wouldn't listen. If they listen for a minute, very soon, they'd be back to doing the same thing again. They'd forget. Said, but Don Bosco was warned that this is a very, very serious problem. It was among his own boys in his own school, he said. And, uh, you know, this, this message to Don Bosco is, you go back to warn them, they won't hearken to what you say. They're so bound up by this human respect and being accepted and being followed by others or shall I say, being accepted and having and following others, example. Now, what would that do to a man like Don Bosco, who devoted his life to teaching these boys and trying to get them to heaven, and being warned by evidently an angelic guide, his efforts would not succeed with many of them. Well, again, 
As he sees this vision or this dream unfold, it does strike him to the heart and the heart of what he's doing and whether he's wasting his time trying to save these ch children. But anyway, I'll get to that at the end. But he says, as they go on, he says, he, he examines the traps then more closely and he finds them listed as uh, pride, disobedience, envy, theft, gluttony, impurities, and so on. Things that we do in order to fit in. He said the most dangerous of these were impurity, disobedience, and pride. The snare of human respect, he says, to commit these sins in order not to offend others who have no concern of offending God. But he said that there were positioned along the way various cutting instruments, knives and so on. He said these were uh, placed along the way for enabling the boys to cut themselves free. He said they, the greatest of these knives, almost like a, as large as a sword, was a devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. And there was another large knife, the size of a sword, devotion to the Blessed Mother, he said. These things were along the way as instruments to enable the boys to free themselves if they were ensnared by this. He said there was also a hammer. The hammer, he said, symbolized confession. With a hammer, they could also free themselves. And devotion to St. Joseph. Anyway, as they proceeded along, he said, the way got rougher and rougher, steeper and steeper. The roses were gone. Again, the hedges were gone, the trees were gone, and the way was covered with long thorns. He realized we're describing the way to hell. This is the way we, the way at first was verdant and beautiful and attractive. And, but as they proceeded along the way, it became more and more vicious. He said, he realized they were on their way to hell. The branches were withered and twisted. They came to a gulch. They came to a, a way that was becoming, as he said, so, so steep and horrid. It was rutted and guttered, bristling with boulders at this point. And still the boys were coming, he said. He kept going on and on to the point where now he wasn't just floating on the way. It seemed as though he could barely keep his feet. It was so steep. He was in danger now of actually falling. And uh, he kept re seeing these, these traps everywhere, as fine as spider webs, hardly visible, seemingly flimsy and harmless, and yet extremely dangerous. So uh, in any case, I'm trying to uh, edit this as I go along, so please be patient with me in that. At the bottom of that precipice he talked about before, he says there was a dark valley, a dark valley with an enormous building in it. An enormous building in the midst of, he'd been through a great plain, he's been along this, this pathway out in the wilderness, out in the, uh, uh, seemingly, you know, just out in the countryside with nothing around. And now he sees at the bottom of this precipice in this valley, he sees this enormous building. And as he came to the gate, the outside gate of the building, 
He looked up and read the inscription, the place of no reprieve. And he says, when I read that, I realized we were at the gates of hell. Now, you know, you think about the idea of this enormous building. You think, well, actually, it makes sense because uh, hell is a place and we think of it as a prison. It is a gigantic prison. So the idea of having this gigantic uh, building there, um, which would be an enclosure of hell, is not so far-fetched. I'll read this part. He says, The guide led me all around this horrible place. At regular distances, bronze portals, like the first overlooked precipitous descents, on each was an inscription, such as, Depart from me, ye accursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's St. Matthew, chapter 25, verse 41. And every tree that yieldeth not good fruit shall be cut down and shall be cast into the fire. St. Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. In fact, this kind of uh, harmonizes with what we read in St. Matthew's Gospel at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's St. Matthew chapter 7, where our Lord tells us that there'll be those who will be really surprised at their condemnation. They'll be really surprised, protesting, but Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we cast out devils in your name? Read the end of the Sermon on the Mount, St. Matthew, chapter 7. Go to the end and read what it says. There will be those who will be very, very genuinely surprised that they're being condemned to hell. And our Lord said that he will just say to them, I assure you, I never knew you. I never knew you. And with that, it's over. They're condemned. Quite a thought, huh? You know, to think. I mean, uh, I don't know how many people guarantee themselves heaven, but the idea of being condemned, most people don't want to take that as a serious possibility, but our Lord makes it very clear that uh, there'll be those who will be genuinely surprised. At this point, uh, John Bosco says he saw a boy racing down the hill, racing headlong and he couldn't stop. He was just traveling faster than his legs could carry him. And the outer gate opened and the boy plunged through it and the gate slammed shut. Don Bosco said actually as the boy rapidly approached the gate, the outside gate opened and then the interior gates, he said, it looked like a thousand gates one by one by one in rapid succession all opened. And the boy just plunged headlong through them all. And as he moved on, one by one, they slammed shut behind him. And his guide said, don't you know how terrible God's vengeance is? Do you think that you can restrain one who is fleeing from God's just wrath? In other words, he said when he saw the boy running toward that gate of hell, the boy looked as though he couldn't get there fast enough. The boy was looking back over his shoulder as though he was running from something. It's hard to imagine running from something for the sake of seeking refuge in hell to get away from something. 
But the image that is given here in John Bosco's dream is this boy was running to get away from the wrath of God that was pursuing him, almost as though he sought refuge in hell. Here's what he says. Meanwhile, the youth had, had turned his fiery gaze backward in an attempt to see if God's wrath were still pursuing him. The next moment he fell tumbling to the bottom of the ravine and crashed against the bronze portal as though he could find no better refuge in his flight. Why was he looking backward in terror, I asked. Because God's wrath will pierce hell's gates to reach and torment him, even in the midst of fire. As the boy crashed into the portal, it sprang open with a roar, and instantly a thousand inner portals opened with a deafening clamor, as if struck by a body that had been propelled by an invisible, most violent, irresistible gale. As these bronze doors, one behind the other, though at a considerable distance from each other, remained momentarily open, I saw far into the distance something like furnace jaws sprouting fiery balls the moment the youth hurtled into it. As swiftly as they had opened, the portals then clanged shut again. For a third time I tried to jot down the name of that unfortunate lad, but the guide again restrained me. The guide would not let him make a note about any of the boys that he saw there. Then he saw three more boys rushing the same way here. And he saw the portals open thunderously and slam shut with a rumble and then dead silence. Every time, every time the gates swallowed up one of his boys, it'd be the same thing. With a great thunder, they would open and slam shut and then there'd be dead silence. He said, bad companions, bad books, bad habits, these are mainly responsible for so many eternally lost, his guide said to him. And Don Bosco says, well, these boys are alive. I just saw them. I just saw them yesterday in my school. And Don Bosco's guide said, well, remember now, their present state is at your school. What you see is their future. This is where they would go if they were to die right now. This is where they would be. So you can see the agony that Don Bosco felt, concern for the boys to prevent them from doing this. He kept talking about the need to warn them. And you know what uh, his guide said? They have superiors, let them obey them. They have rules, let them observe them. They have the sacraments, let them receive them. This is the guide's answer. They have these things available to them. What do you think you can do beyond these things? And Don Bosco finally grimly asked him, am I just wasting my life and devoting my time and my effort and my care for this? And the answer was, no, no, you're not, you're not. All of these quotations given over the gates of hell are real, they are there, they are Quotations from sacred scripture, divine revelation. He will give fire and worms into their flesh, and they may burn, that they may burn and may feel forever. Saint Judith chapter 16. These shall go into everlasting punishment, Matthew chapter 25. The pool of fire where both the beast and the false prophet shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Apocalypse chapter 20. A land of misery and darkness where the shadow of death and no order but everlasting horror dwelleth. Job chapter 10. 
These things are inscribed over the gates of hell. John Bosco says he saw them all there. So in, uh, in all of this, one of the worst things Don Bosco saw, though, was when he was in the inner, gate of, inner gates of hell. And there he saw the pit of fire. And he saw one of the boys, again, racing down, racing toward it and plunging headlong into it. And as soon as the boy hit that fire, he froze in fire. He was frozen in place, hand over foot, foot over head, head over heels. He was completely engulfed, but he was frozen in place forever. And he was just filled with fire. What a horrible sight that was. He totally immobilized, as St. Teresa of Avila said, totally immobilized with that interior fire. What a terrible thing it would be. He said, Don Bosco said he saw other boys follow, and it's as though they became incandescent and perfectly motionless when they hit this fire. With only a dying wail lingering for an instant more. What a sight. No wonder he was he was so well, it affected him very deeply, needless to say. I would say enervated, but no, that doesn't even express the meaning. As he sees this happening to the boys whom he's devoting his life to caring for, like there was some statuary group here ablaze with fire. Again, his guide warned him, they've been warned a thousand times. They've been warned a thousand times, and still they choose to rush into the fire, he says. Then Don Bosco heard the voices of hell and the cries of hell, shrill and confused, as though those figures, so still, as though you could actually hear what the, the interior cry, something they couldn't voice, but the interior sound of their shriek and their cries. He was given to hear these things. And he, it was just horrible. There are those who in exorcism say there's a certain stage in the exorcism when the devil tries to discourage the exorcist by allowing him here to hear, to hear the sound of hell. And it, it sounds like a million voices all shouting, screaming, shrieking at the same time. But you can't make out a single word, but they're human voices and you can hear them, but you can't understand a single thing they're saying. But they're all just shrieking madly. And it would be, well, there are those who say it is just very, very... It's overwhelming, in a sense. We're not for our faith and our trust in God. It was just very shaking. It would shake one to, to the soles of his feet, that sound. I gather that that is what St. Bosco was allowed to hear. So in any case, I, I think we've said enough about this, but I mean, the fact is, we have plenty of uh, evidence from the lives of the saints Plenty of evidence from the teachings of the church and her councils. Plenty of evidence from the theologians. And of course, plenty of evidence from the Gospels themselves. The words of our Lord himself. About the nature of hell. And uh, this should be a very sobering thought. The carelessness with which people approach the idea with... Uh, of how they treat their soul's salvation, how they treat their soul's damnation.
is just terrifying. It's just terrifying to see that. It's just terrifying to see how cavalierly people deal with that question of damnation. When we see unfolding here on earth world wars and other great tragedies, to realize that the trials of this, of this world are nothing in comparison with the punishment of hell. You'd think the modern, moderns regard hell as being one enormous rock concert, as though they're just going to some enormous rock concert. They think, hey, that sounds okay to me. I can live with that. They're sadly mistaken, tragically. Tragically mistaken, though. The voices, the vices they're cultivating in their souls are so terrible that they are going to bury them deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into hell. And when they get there, they'll realize too late that God was very serious about this. He means it. And then they will have nothing but regret. And there's no consolation in that. What does God want of us then? What does he want of us? Okay. You see, vice in the soul is to be found ultimately in the human will. We have passions, and these passions are irrational. Passions do not love. Passions, passions are expressions of desire, anger, but they do not select the good according to its real value. Passions are not intelligent they have to be governed by intelligence. The will itself has to shepherd or guard those passions of ours. The will has to be subject to intelligence. That is to say, in this case, the virtue of faith. The virtue of faith has to be the beginning in us, the beginning in us of that supernatural life. And that faith has to inspire hope and faith and hope have to inspire charity, charity in the will. And the will has to then direct all the other powers of the human soul. When vices get in there, they wreak terrible damage. They just wreak havoc in there. We see that with Adam and Eve, with the fall of mankind. We see what it did to them and what it has done to us. Original sin. Darkening the intellect, weakening the will, making them slaves of the passions. We see uh, that it turns man not into an animal, it turns him into a devil. It turns him into a demon. What does God want of us, though? In place of those vices, he wants us to grow what we know as virtues. He wants there to be strengths in place of the weaknesses. And he himself gives us the power to cultivate those strengths. We talk about virtues, 
as strengths with the title vir, man, virtue. To act in a manly way is to be virtuous. But don't take too much pride in that, gentlemen, because the women have the same virtues and they're called to exercise the same virtues. The virtues are the same for men and women. And God has to see those virtues in us. The very first quote that I read to you was the quote that requires us to produce some good fruit. There has to be some good fruit growing in our souls, some benefit to God, something delightful to God. And those are the virtues. This is what our soul does. The powers of our soul are made for virtues, to exercise virtues. They're not the same as the gifts of the Holy Ghost. The gifts of the Holy Ghost open our hearts to receive from God his influence, the divine influence of the Holy Ghost. The virtues, though, are active. We are meant to use them. They are strengths. Rather, they, they, are, they are matters that develop our intellect and our will and enable us to know what is right and to do what is right. Virtues are ordered to action. They are meant to produce. They are meant to produce. The very word produce, you go to the produce aisle of a supermarket, you see produce, the fruits of the earth, the fruits of things. Make them grow, produce something worthwhile, produce something beautiful. And that is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to produce something for God. That is what justifies our existence here on earth. It's the only thing that can justify our existence here on earth. It's the only thing that can actually justify the life that God has given to us. That is our response to his grace in producing these good things. You know, if you look at the, the paramount man, I would say the, the apotheosis of manhood is to be found in, in, after our Lord himself in St. Joseph. In St. Joseph. And you look at the litany that the church tells us to pray for St. Joseph, the litany. And you go down the line and you read what the church finds admirable in St. Joseph. St. Joseph, pray for us. After you have the litany, Lord have mercy on us, Christ have mercy on us, Lord have mercy on us, God the Father of heaven have mercy on us. And so after invoking the Blessed Trinity, after invoking our Blessed Lady, then St. Joseph, pray for us. Illustrious scion of David, that is to say offspring of David, pray for us. Light of patriarchs, spouse of the mother of God, chaste guardian of the virgin, foster father of the son of God, watchful defender of Christ, head of the Holy Family. Those are the first invocations to St. Joseph, and you know what they are? They are all titles. They're all titles given to St. Joseph. They're titles of honor given to him, defining his place in God's plan. But immediately after you finish that list of titles of St. Joseph, now you get to his virtues. And now we begin to praise him for the virtues which made him a saint. After faith and open charity, here's what we read. Joseph, most just. Joseph, most chaste. Joseph, most prudent. Joseph, most valiant. The very first four of these virtues for which we honor St. Joseph are the virtues that we know in moral theology as the moral virtues, the cardinal virtues. You learned about them when you were studying the catechism. The very first 
four virtues. We extol it, St. Joseph, are the virtues of justice and temperance and prudence and fortitude. We know them in the order that were given in moral theology as prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. These are the first virtues we honor in St. Joseph. And the other, the other virtues that we, that we honor St. Joseph for, his obedience, his fidelity, his patience, even his detachment from worldly things, those virtues derive from the first four that I mentioned to you. Joseph most just, Joseph most chaste, just justice, chaste temperance, Joseph most prudent, obviously prudence, Joseph most valiant, obviously fortitude. All of the other virtues follow from those four. They are considered to be the manly virtues of Joseph. Where are you and I when it comes to these four virtues? The virtues that make a man a man. The virtues that make a Catholic man a Catholic man. The virtues that make a Catholic man a Catholic gentleman. Catholic gentleman. Where are you and I with these virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance? Now, if we keep going in that litany, by the way, we find that the litany then goes on to talk about St. Joseph's service, what he did. We start with his titles, then we go to his virtues, and then we list his services his services to God. When you pray the litany to St. Joseph, be mindful of this. Know what you're doing. Know what you're saying here. His services to God, model of workmen, glory of domestic life, guardian of virgins, pillar of families, solace of the afflicted, hope of the sick, patron of the dying, terror of demons, protector of holy church. These are the services that St. Joseph renders to God. So these are the things that we consider to be the, the manly virtues of St. Joseph, starting with prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. But you know, even though virtues start with the word vir, meaning man, they also apply to Our Lady in a very special way. And so you see again, the litany to Our Lady starts with her titles as Mother of God, Virgin of Virgins, but then go into virtues. And we find Mary most pure, virtue of temperance. Mary most chaste, virtue of temperance. Mary inviolate, virtue of temperance. Mother undefiled, virtue of temperance. Mother of good counsel, the virtue of prudence. Virgin most prudent, obviously. Virgin most powerful, her fortitude. Mirror of justice. Seat of wisdom, again, referring to her prudence. So you see, the virtues that make St. Joseph the model of a Catholic man are the virtues also shown in Our, Our Lady's own life. They have to be found in every, the life of every saint.